Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, a standout of the Victoria Police, Chris Costa. Often it's our youngest inexperienced people who are going out armed with a gun, a taser, a baton, handcuffs and all of the authority in the world to deprive someone of their liberty without reference to anybody else in the world. And they're subject to the same temptations that ordinary humans will be. You don't get to choose when you operate without fear or favour. It's all the time. In 2019, Chris Costa resigned as the final Chief Inspector of the Victorian Police. He had an incredible career from 1974 to 2019. That's 45 years. Now, with these episodes, as you'll note, we talk to these officers about three separate cases, and we dive into that world and understand the processes they undertook to execute to the best of their ability. This week we're going to do things a little differently. Chris worked in a range of different jobs in VicPol, but to start, we're jumping back to the beginning, when he decided to join the police and learn what his motivation for it was. You said, Chris, and uh, and I pull me up if I've misquoted you here, that your motivation to join the police was you wanted to do something good for the community. Is that is that sort of Absolutely. Um, yeah. And... I ask myself that often, why am I doing this job? And it was always that motivation. I asked myself this morning, why am I coming in here? Um, <laughs> and, and it's the same reason. I'm right. trying to do something decent for the community. If someone yeah. listens to this and thinks, oh, that's a career I might be interested in and they might be good at it, then that's good enough for me. Did you have a, a pathway in mind, Chris? I've, I've, I've had chaps sitting in that chair who've said that they – went into the police with this distinct idea that they were going to be detective or they were going to be this or that. What, what were your thoughts in those early days? Yeah, I was 19 years old, so I was like every 19-year-old. I knew everything, but I didn't have a distinct pathway in mind, and, and I've always advised people since, don't do that. I was given some really good, good, good advice early on to say, look around, see what attracts you, see what you're good at, see what you like doing before you make a decision, because... Everyone who thinks they're going to be a detective or they're going to be a whatever, they're all basing it on what they've seen on television. And that's got nothing to do with reality because we don't solve crimes in an hour. See, now, you, you like me, Chris, 19, you know, nine foot tall and bulletproof. I applied on my 19th birthday. My, you know, my old man said to me, mate, don't go straight into the police. Go and get a trade. No, 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 I knew, I knew best. But, um, you know, mind you, you made it a trade. You, you, stick around, you stuck around for 45 years. So, uh, <laughs> now, so you would, have done, you would have done general duties as we all do for a while. Sure. Um, but you, you made a movement up through or a, across to recruitment. Now, that's quite an interesting pathway to follow. So I eventually ended up in charge of recruit training. Right. I would get them when they'd come into the academy. Okay. Um, they'd already been through the selection process and, and vetting process and so on, and then they'd end up on our doorstep. And me, along with a very talented team of uh, trainers, would have them for, at that time, five months, and we would seek to prepare them for an operational policing career. Part of that also entailed constant assessment to see whether they were right for the job. Now, there would have been, um, getting there, I mean, you know, again, folks may have an interest in this. Um, back in the day, uh, you had to go through physicals, medicals, you had to do a few exams and bits and pieces to get in. You had to have references and one thing and another. And at that point, some get culled, some make it, some don't. Goodness me, I remember it was a, 
Um, things have changed a bit now, I guess, Chris, but you know, you had to do so many press ups, so many sit ups, so many chin ups, you had to do a two K run or whatever in a certain time. And yeah. I, I, I can remember being in a room with a with a recruitment sergeant and a bloke, you know, say it was twenty chin ups. I think he did nineteen and a half, couldn't do the no, go on, see it. And it was almost as cutthroat <laughs> as that. It was it's a little bit different, a little bit different now. And then once you're in the academy, just tell the folks a bit about that. There'd be physical training, there'd be studying, there'd be exams and all that sort of stuff, I guess, yeah. So recruit yeah. training had three distinct arms. Um, yes. The first and most obvious one was law and police procedure. Uh, the second one was operational skills. So that, that involved the physical components, um, dealing with people going hands-on, dealing with firearms, dealing with batons, dealing with now tasers. And the third one was communication skills. Right. I always emphasise to, com- to recruits that all three were equally important. And I know that, I, I, I doubt if there was a single recruit that thought I was telling the truth um, because they would put all the focus on law and police procedure. Um, yeah. And I would debate with them and offer the alternative comment that there is only one of those skills that applies to every single rank from the lowest to the highest in Victoria Police. And that's, mm. and that's communication skills. It is the one that people often discounted, but I would argue that's the critical one of, of all. You can get by with having poor knowledge of law and police procedure. You can get by on poor operational skills, but if you've got poor communication skills, you're lost. Just on that, Chris, I'm interested in your take on this. You can teach a young recruit the law. You know, you can teach some crimes at all, all the rest of it. You can teach a young recruit sort of how to defend themselves, baton training and firearm training. Teaching communication skills, it's almost, you've either got that or you haven't. What do you, what do you reckon? Oh, no, I think, I think that's a very teachable and very learnable skill. So there's a range of ways of doing it. Um, obviously, practice is one of them. Yes. Um, teaching particular techniques is, is another. And, mm-hmm. and we don't do as well as I think we should on that because we often get police at press conferences doing the wooden type responses of talking about, you know, a male who decamped in a northerly direction. Yes, yes. And we did everything we could to undo that. We wouldn't let people do that in recruit training, but then they'd copy others when they they graduated. And a lot of the communication skills was also about writing um, because we made the point that, you know, they'll they'll write a statement and that may well end up in the Supreme Court and be analysed by... QCs, KCs, uh, senior councillors, they're called now, um, and judges of the Supreme Court for days at a time. So to get that written communication spot on is critical to their success rate. Now, in your role there, you would have had to put a bit of a a black line, red line, call it what you will, through the names of a few recruits that just weren't uh, up to muster? Absolutely. Um, And we carefully looked at that. We had a simple criteria. Um, and the criteria was for all of us, from me to all of the law instructors, the operational skills instructors, and that was if we wouldn't work with them ourselves, we're not going to inflict upon them on anybody else. Mm. So it was a, a day-to-day judgment. Would we work with this person alongside us out on the divisional van? That was a, a judgment call we'd have to make. Um, often... Uh, things would come to a, uh, recruits would bring things to us by, by their behaviour. So, you know, the demon drink um, often often brought um, recruits to my office, and they'd leave by a, by the door that they probably would not choose to. Yeah. Um, you know, often people talk about police being a reflection of the community. They'll make mistakes with alcohol just like everyone else will. Um, we hold them to a high standard. Mm. We don't expect them to to make those errors. And if they're going to make them in recruit training, they're going to make them even bigger when they when they get out there in the big wide world. Now you've, of course, you know, a lot of recruits going through under your watch, um, and and you you know you're doing the best that you can to sort of weed through the guys. And and overwhelmingly, I would imagine by the time that they have got through all the checks and balances required to get into the college, into the academy, it's probably a smallish amount that don't make muster uh, once they get there. Um, That's true. Yeah. What about the flip side of that? Um, did you ever feel a, a responsibility, Chris, for you know a few that slipped through the net, and then you, you sort of read about them in the uh, the front page of the Age a few years later, or you slap your forehead and go, "Oh, how do we how do we not pick that one up?" There was there was one that sticks in my mind. We we presented to a, re, a review panel with the prospect of dismissing the person accused of cheating in ex, in an exam, 
mm. and that person wasn't dismissed. Ironically, at the, on that day, there were two people presented for cheating in an exam. One of them was dismissed and one of them wasn't. And the one that wasn't, um, I thought was a, a, a big error. And some years later, that person was convicted of some f- serious fraud offences and dismissed, dismissed from the force then. So I think we'd made the right judgment about their underlying values that weren't in accord with what we expected. But I don't, I'm not critical of that review panel that didn't dismiss them either, because I think they said we're not convinced there's enough evidence to proceed to a dismissal. I'm just going to run this past you, Chris, because I might not have made muster if you were uh, calling the shots, mate. I, I applied for the police on my 19th birthday. Yeah, as it was, it was like, that was the earliest you could apply. I went into the police academy a few months later. As, uh, I was the youngest recruit in the academy, so after the training, you know, youngest bloke out on the street. And um, but I actually, Chris, uh, I actually got myself in a bit of strife as a young bloke, and I won't go into too much detail. But got on the wrong side of of the law as a 16 year old, charged with a couple of offences, ended up in. Children, young persons court with a judge who, ironically, I ended up working with as a police officer. Now he had no memory of me, but for reasons best known to him, uh, I was admonished and discharged, which was the old term. Now I think here in New South Wales they call it a section ten. You know, yep. basically where you put your hand up, you cough to the offence in court. It's not high level, um, and and a judge can allow you to walk out without a conviction because, as we know, uh, anybody who applies for police armed forces or Conviction that that's it. You, they 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 won't they won't touch you. So I went into that recruitment meeting uh, knowing that when they put my name and date of birth in the old police computer, these three offences were going to drop down. And I can remember the stern look that I got from the recruitment chap. Um, but he gave me a bit of a chance, and uh, I went then through you know the exams and the medicals and the physicals, went into the academy and things like that. And I guess. Oftentimes, blokes that uh, can turn out all right can make some blues as a young blo- a, a young fella. And uh, that recruitment sergeant who sat across the desk from me when I was 19, he'd have been about the age of my dad. He probably looked at me and thought, yeah, he'd been a bit of a mug, but there might be something here. And he gave me gave me a green light and away you go. And look, we, we do the same thing. We know that 16-year-olds make mistakes. Um, all of us at 16 made mistakes. The smart ones learn from them. The dumb ones continue to make the same mistakes. Well, and the dumb ones get caught too, Chris. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he would have made a, a, a judgment that you learnt from that experience. Oh, and I remember him. I remember that guy so, so clearly. I remember him and I remember the judge as well because at the stroke of a pen, my police career could have been non-existent if he'd convicted me on one of those three offences. So these sliding door moments in life, uh, Chris, aren't there? So we wouldn't have been quite as accommodating if it was a 25-year-old coming in with that story. Yes. Because we'd say, well, you're not a 16-year-old. That's, well, and that's and there lies a really interesting point. I've, I've often said I'm, I'm lucky enough to do a few chats to young blokes in schools and I talk about, you know, choices, consequences, heartbeat decisions that we make. And I said the thing that probably saved me or people like me is I made my mistakes at such a young age where if I'd done what I'd done at 22, 23, it's like, no, I'm not going not gonna to touch you. Because we'd expect more of you at that age. Yes. And I think uh, you, you put your money where your mouth is there. I think I'm right that young Lauren, your daughter, is actually uh, a serving member of the Victorian Police. She is, yeah. she's. Um, I'm sure she sat down with Dad and said, Dad, what do you reckon? Um, no, she sat down and said, Dad, guess what this I'm doing? This is what I've done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very funny. But she yeah. does ask me sometimes to write reports oh, for I her. I bet she does. <laughs> I, bet, I tell you what, not a bad contact to have if, uh, if you've yeah. got to put something together. Now let's uh, let's fast forward. It's not fast forwarding in, in in a sort of time sense, but uh, I'm really interested in having a chat to you about your role, state coordinator of uh, the the uh, or managing the neighbourhood watch project. I think from '82 to around '90 or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. You know, neighbourhood watch was. I remember it was huge at the time in the '80s. It was it was a really big thing. Everybody was involved in it. There'd be quite a few folks listening into this who may not be of our vintage. Um, Chris, that they might have heard of this or their parents might have spoken about it, but um, can you just sort of walk us through where that came? I think it was an American program that was sort of then replicated in, in, in Victoria. Tell us a bit about that. I've tracked the history of it. It flourished in the United States and Canada. It became really big there and spread quite significantly throughout both countries. And we started planning it in 1982. We had the first pilot project in 83. 
we we uh, had statewide implementation in '84, and it was just defined as a community-based crime prevention program aimed at reducing preventable crime, in particular residential burglaries. The great thing about it, in my opinion, from that day until now, is that in 1984 we had 51,090 residential burglaries in this state. We've never reached that level again since 1984. Right. We haven't gone down every year, but we now uh, settle around the in the mid-20,000s. So we're about almost half the number of residential burglaries that there were back in 1984 when we started implementing Neighbourhood Watch statewide. Now, just tell me how this would work too. Again, I I, I remember it, but there'd be others that, you know, have heard of it but not know. The Neighbourhood Watch was, it involved sort of neighbourhood meetings and often police would attend and you had somebody who coordinated the Neighbourhood Watch. Just how how did it work? What were the brass tacks of it? So the model then, and and it still exists, it's just not, not the same as it was then. The model then was we had a defined area of around about 600 houses mm-hmm. and there'd be a citizen uh, person elected to be an area coordinator Yes, and you'd break up that area into, into zones of about 30 houses and you'd have a zone leader for each area. And it was all about communication, telling people what's happening, when it's happening, where it's happening. That communication started to become rife throughout communities and if there was a, a spate of something happening of letterboxes getting kicked at in, in, in um, Smith Street, Collingwood, then suddenly people knew about that and they could report suspicious behaviour. They could do something about it. And that then, that information, that intelligence, call it what you will, that was being gathered by the neighbours, would then flow through to police who could be a little bit more proactive and putting patrols in that area and that type of thing. Absolutely. And police would attend those meetings. There'd be month, monthly meetings of those Zone leaders, police would attend and tell them what's been going on, answer questions about, you know, any trends that are developing uh, in, in any part of the the area. And, you know, it, it became a genuine partnership. I strongly believe that uh, a, a partnership between the community and police is the way to go in dealing with all sorts of levels of crime. Um, it works well with just about everything you can think of. And, and, and your connection there would be that once Neighbourhood Watch sort of came into being, people were far more inclined to call stuff out, report suspicious vehicles, individuals and things like that. And are you saying that that was what led to that reduction? Look, the, the number one way to prevent crime is to increase the chances of apprehension. Mm. You know, there's a bottle of water in front of me right now, and I assume this is being videotaped. The chances of me, if I steal this bottle of water, the chances of me being caught are about 100% because you can um, play back the videotape and watch me putting it in my pocket. Um, If there's no videotape and the chances of me stealing it are about 10%, I might run that risk. I think burglars are smart enough to work out when they see neighbourhood watch signs around. Yeah. The chances of me being reported for suspicious behaviour here are higher than they might have otherwise been. And, and uh, am I right in saying that this, this, the pilot of that started in, in Frankston, yes, in Victoria, um, and then it was, it was so successful that it was sort of spread statewide, uh, statewide fairly, fairly quickly after the success in Frankston. Yeah. But we did it one area at a time, um, right. you know, 600 yeah. house areas at a time, yes. um, yeah. to the stage where when I left in 1990, there was about 1,100 neighbourhood watch areas established in Victoria. Wow. Um, yeah. Of 600 odd houses each. And um, every other state copied our model. So, yeah, that, so that was my next question because um, folks in, in, in New South Wales, folks in, in Queensland are going, yeah, I've heard of this. But this started in Victoria, started yeah. with that initiative in Frankston, which you oversaw and went from there. We were the first. Um, there's a little bit of controversy over that. There's a small area in Western Australia that think they were the first. Right. Um, and I've had that debate a few times. I thought it had been done and dusted, but I learnt recently they were still claiming it. Um, <laughs> but um, interestingly, the Neighbourhood Watch logo that's well known was designed yes. by one of the people in that original pilot project. He he was a graphic artist. He, he drew it. And that logo is used in all states now, including Western Australia. So I think they've kind of conceded that we were the first. Yes. <laughs> Jeez, that's like those bloody Kiwis claiming the Pavlova, mate. We can't have that. Yeah. And 
you know, I'm still having trouble with Farlap. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what the, the picture I've got then, you talk about that graphic. These are the stickers that were on letterboxes and they're on the front of houses. And almost, there, there was a deterrent there also. It's like, you know, the modern day alarm that you go out and spend 10 grand to put, you know, some sort of audible alarm around your house. Back in the day, it was the old it was the old sticker that was dropped off that you put on the you know on the front door, you put it on the front window, you put it on the letterbox, and it let the crooks know. Well, you know, you, like your analogy with the uh, with the water bottle, well, you can have a go, but the neighbours will be onto you, type of thing. We had street signs as well. Um, yeah, you know, they're exactly the same size as uh, speed limit signs. They were actually produced by the same people, still are. Like this is a neighbourhood watch area, yeah. and yeah, yeah, so. Uh, it instantly told crooks that if you want to come into this area and, and you know, do criminal behaviour, there's a really good chance you're going to be reported, which means there's a really good chance you're going to be caught. The proof's in the pudding, mate, isn't it? With As you say, uh, you've gone from 50... 51,090. 51,090. That's a that's a number ingrained in your in your memory, yeah. I can tell, Chris. <laughs> um, to less than half that since the program was sort of inst- yeah, instigated, yeah. And, yeah. and that's a statewide figure. Um we often got a lot of criticism from academics who would say, all you're going to do is displace crime. They'll move from Frankston right. and they'll right. go to Seaford or they'll go from Seaford to to Chelsea. Um, so I never quoted individual figures. I always quoted statewide figures Yes, and said, yeah. well, if they leave us and go to New South Wales. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their problem. Exactly. Yes. So did New South Wales number go up at a corresponding time, Chris? I, I've never, ever checked what, what the other states were. Yes. Um, yeah. All I do know is that you know, I did a study of um, the United States and Canada in 1987, and one of the remarkable things I found was that our burglary rate then um, was still very high by comparison with United States areas. We would have actually been the third highest. Uh, Melbourne, uh, Victoria, would have been the third highest state um, in the United States. For, for um, home burglary. For home burglaries. Is that right? Now, tell, just run that past me again. So when was that? When did you gather those stats? I mean, that's quite incredible. I did that in 1987. Um, I did a Churchill Fellowship and studied for three months in the US and Canada. And I, I couldn't quite believe it. I had to check and recheck the, the figures that I, I discovered. Yeah. Um, there's only two cities that had more burglaries than us, um, and that was New York and uh, Los Angeles. Um, Jeez, mate, that's an incredible, that's an incredible statistic, isn't Chicago it? Chicago was lower than us. People often ask me why was that the case and what I discovered um, dealing with a lot of the community groups in the US was that when they left their home, they expected to be broken into. So they left it in a state where it was really difficult to break into. Yeah, right, um, okay. They were yeah, prepared yeah. for it. Yes, yeah, greater did, awareness. and yeah, We yeah, did yeah, quite yeah. the opposite. Mm. We were very um, conservative about it, and we just left our houses thinking, no one's going to break in here. Yeah, leave the back door unlocked because I'm just going down to the footy Who for cares? an hour or two. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, guess what? Then they get surprised that someone's broken in. Now, you know, Chris, you're, you're in the job a long, long time, and, and pull me up if I've got this wrong, but I've, I've got a quote here from you that, that this this involvement that you had in, in establishing, formulating, and, and rolling out the um, the Neighbourhood Watch project, you you, you a quote is saying it was a highlight of your career. Is that is that? Yeah, it, it yeah. was the highlight of my yeah. career, and yeah. I've, I've often been challenged on that and asked, you know, surely there's more exciting things. There is more exciting things, but I think that part of my career was the most complete um, because I was dealing with every aspect of uh, policing. I was dealing with police on an everyday basis. I was dealing with community on an everyday basis, and I was dealing with normal everyday people in the community, and unlike a traditional policing role where you only ever deal with people in conflict or in conflict situations, I was dealing with people on a friendly basis often. So I think I got the privilege of understanding the community better than most people yeah. because I got a, m- a much more representative group. Um, and it was groundbreaking. Um, so unlike so much of policing, which is very rules-based, there were no rules for us. Um, we were making the rules up as we went along, and no one could tell us we were wrong because we were the first in, in Australia. The, the flow-on effect for neighbourhoods, I mean, goodness, um, a lot of us are probably guilty of this. We live in these big cities. 
you've, you've got neighbours over the back fence, over each side fence, and uh, a lot of people would, if they're going to be honest, put their hand up and say, you know, I've never, I've never met the people that live over the back fence. I don't know the people that live two doors down. I know the ones next to us, but two doors down. So you would have broken a lot of barriers. And I know it was probably a time where people perhaps were a little bit more neighbourhood conscious, but that must have brought a lot of that together as well. And there's so many benefits to that too, aren't there? You Absolutely. Know, for elderly did. folks living on their own and things such as that. In yeah. that very early days, I remember often telling a story about um, two people that lived together side by side for 10 years and they'd never actually met each other. And after Neighbourhood Watch was established, they met each other. They discovered they'd actually went to the same school. So, you know, they had a lot in common. And, you know, I, I'm really lucky that we live in an area where um, our neighbours are just uh, gold. They are just delightful people and we see them and talk to them often. But I know that's not the case often as well. And I had I had some um, people from the UK here recently that talked about the phenomena in the UK of the um, remote controlled closing garage door that you you get home, open the garage door, drive your car in, never see anybody, never walk out the front of your house, never see anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's counterproductive to a good community. Sadly, in some places, that's the reality as well. Now tell me, Chris, do you still have the uh, Neighbourhood Watch sticker on the letterbox? <laughs> I don't live in a Neighbourhood Watch area. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll let you go. I'll let you, I'll let you have that one. <laughs> Internal investigations, I, I want to have a bit of a chat to you about that because every department, you know, be it state and what have you, has a, uh, a department that's, that, that's what they do. They do internal investigations. This area is more, and this, this may come as a surprise to some, as a commissioned officer, which you are once you read that, that, that role of inspector and above, you are often involved in what we would call internal investigations, whereby you are using your time, your experience, resources and everything to actually investigate police rather than you know, the crooks that we assume that the police are, are dealing with. You did a lot of that work, Chris, during your time because you're in the job for such a long period of time. As a general duties operational inspector, that's part of your job to do internal investigations. As a, as a commissioned officer working anywhere, um, you'll, you'll be allocated internal investigation files to investigate. And I'm a strong supporter of police investigating police for a couple of reasons. One, that they're, they're usually better investigators than anyone else. Um, and secondly, because they actually know the system. If someone's telling me a story that is abundantly untrue, I know if they're telling me lies. If there was a lawyer com uh, appointed to be that internal investigator, and I know pl places do that, they might not know that. They might take a guess, but they don't know for sure. So if you want the best result you have the best investigators doing it. And I think that's what you have when you have police doing it. Because that is that is an often rolled out sort of oh, criticism, observation, call it what you will. Why do we have police investigating police? Because the assumption therefore being it's all going to be nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and, and what have you. Your experience and the reality of actually doing it is is quite the opposite. That if you've got if you've got good, decent people running those investigations who are qualified investigators, and plus, if you're investigating, you know, general duty coppers, you've been there, you've done it. They, they can't pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah. And and so there's kind of two two aspects to it. One, if, if there's an accusation of criminality, then, you know, we're going to go all out to deal with people who are involved in criminal activity, whether it's a police officer or not. Um, it just doesn't matter. The other side of the coin is, is usually... In the category of a duty failure, and you know, people will say, "Well, they didn't do this, or they did do this." Um, I can remember one of the complaints about me in my early days was that I was accused of of smiling at someone when I was issuing them a ticket. Um, right. I'm not sure what the offence was there, but right. I was I was supposed to have smiled at somebody. Right. Um, yeah. Now, lots of those situations are complaints because people don't know what we can and can't do. And once you investigate something, and I, I'm a really strong advocate for actually listening to people and letting them tell their story, you can then explain to them, well, what they actually did in this case was what they're trained to do. They were acting 100% in accordance with their training, and then you can outline what their training is. 
often complaints would be dealt with quite quickly by people understanding why things happened the way they did. If you want the best results with police integrity, then you will have police doing investigations always. You know, I'm also a supporter of an oversight over that, to someone looking at it and saying, well, this is not right or this is not enough. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just can't think of any scenario where having police, people who aren't police investigating police, just like I can't think of any scenario where people who aren't doctors investigating doctors. Now, you, you were involved during that time in, in a, a one fairly significant investigation, the Windows investigation in the 90s, which was quite aptly named Windows 95. Can you tell us a bit about that one, Chris? Windows 95 was um, probably a, a, an era of policing that we, we, don't, we look on with some shame because it was a, a time when police were being accused of uh, either breaking windows and then getting a kickback from shutter services uh, who came along to repair them or just getting a kickback from shutter services when the, when windows had been broken by by anybody. Right, yeah. Um, I did one of the earliest investigations and um, it was fairly inconclusive, but notably out of that, it became quite a large investigation that was taken over by our internal investigations department at that time, they actually established a task force to deal with it. And we dismissed several police uh, in that scenario. So we dealt with people who were doing the wrong thing quite quickly. Yeah. And we came up with better processes to avoid that happening in the future. Um, it was happening in the mid nineties and it got that nickname of windows 95. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it was it was unethical behaviour by some police. Yeah. And we got on top of it, and I'm confident that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. I know at that time there were some police stations where it was rife, and I also know at one police station in that area it didn't happen at all, not one single case, and that was because of one sergeant standing up and making a very strong stand to the shutter service companies and saying, get out of here. You come back, you'll be in a whole lot of trouble. Mm. So, you know, it just proves that, you know, police can do the right thing and, and they more often than not do, but they're also human and they sometimes make mistakes. And, yeah. and if it if it's serious enough, um, police will deal with it because we don't want to work with crooks. Yeah, and and, well, and it's like I think was said uh, in an interview I did recently, yeah, the, the police is simply a mechanism of greater society, Chris. Yeah, and, and I, I know like, a lot of... Yeah. A lot of people say that. We, we actually do our very best to make sure they're not. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. well, I mean, I guess what I'm saying there is it's an, it would be impossible to, to have a 100% record of, you know, blokes that are, or officers that are never going to cross the line because it's just, it's just life is not like that. That's absolutely true. I, I get frustrated when I hear the comment that, you know, police are drawn from the community, therefore they reflect the community. Mm. That's just not true. We do everything we can to make sure they don't reflect the community. Because if they did reflect the community, we would recruit people with prior convictions. We would recruit the chronically unemployed. We would recruit a whole range of people that we don't recruit um, because we want the very best. We want the cream. Having set that standard in recruiting, we seek to then maintain it throughout their careers. Chris, I've got this. There's a great quote from you, and I'm not sure where I found it, but I did. Um, and again, pull me up if I get this wrong, but... Uh, and this, this really pertains to, to, to what you're talking about here, I think. Police involves temptation on a minute-by-minute minute basis, and some people fall for it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's an unusual occupation because we send out our people, the most inexperienced people, to deal with people frontline on the streets. The more experienced you get, the more unlikely you are to deal with the community. Uh, it, it's quite ironic, really. Often, it's our youngest inexperienced people who are going out armed with a gun, a taser, a baton, handcuffs, and all of the authority in the world to deprive someone of their liberty without reference to anybody else in the world. They don't have to seek permission. They can arrest you or I without asking permission of anyone. They can do it on their, in, entirely on their own authority, and they're subject to the same temptations that ordinary humans will be. Often police are com compared with the military. I think we're nothing like the military 
because when the military deploy, they deploy entire platoons at a time, they, um, and they'll have an com- entire command structure sent out there. When we put a divisional van out at, at the Rosebud Police Station tonight, we'll put out probably a senior constable and a very junior constable, and that's it. Um, and we expect them to make really high-quality decisions that will be examined to to the nth degree. Yes, yes. That heartbeat decision that they make in the heat of the moment is going to be uh, looked upon from every conceivable angle for months and months down the track. Yeah. yeah. So there's that part to it, the, the analysis of it. And the other part of it is that, and I said this to young, young coppers all the time, understand that in today's environment, from the minute you walk out of the police station to the minute you walk back in, and including all the time that you're in the police station, you're going to be getting, getting uh, filmed on a camera. There's a couple of things I was looking at when I was putting some uh, notes together here, Chris. I mean, when I went through the Academy 84, um, they used to do things, little bits and pieces now and again, like, you know, when you moved in and it, the, the police college just outside of Wellington was fairly new at the time, you got your own room, it was actually quite a nice setup. And... Um, now and again, mate, you, you, the young blokes would move in and uh, and, the, and the young women as well, and there'd be sort of ten dollars left in a drawer, or there'd be ten bucks on the you know under the pillow or something like that. And um, didn't happen to me, but it happened to a couple of blokes that sort of said, "What's what's all this about?" And it was these little tests that were sort of done. Well, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to put it in your back pocket, or are you going to take it to your your sergeant and say, "Hey, look, this was left probably by the last person that moved out." The one that I remember really clearly, Chris, is there was a canteen at the college and. And as you know, you know the, the time that you're at the college as a recruit is fairly intense. You're doing all your studies during the day. You're doing your physical, and, and most nights are spent studying for exams and learning the law and everything else. Um, there was a canteen that was open, I think, for two hours a night. And the, the, the youngest recruits were on a roster to work there. And you might have done it once, I think, maybe twice in the time that you're in the academy. And it was just this little canteen, and you could go down there with five bucks, and you could buy some lollies or a chocolate bar or something like that. Unbeknownst to most, it was under surveillance. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, I had a bloke on my floor. There's only five of us on our floor. Who uh, nice enough young bloke. He went down. He did his um, his stint, his two hours in the canteen. And uh, mate, he was gone the next day. No, no communication with us. No nothing. They'd videoed him, and uh, mate, he was reaching in and grabbing handfuls of sort of lollies and eating them. And while he was doing his homework and stuff, never paid for them. Now, probably you're talking twenty, thirty, forty cents worth of uh, of contraband. But it's that principle, isn't it? You've been left on your own in a trusted position. You're a recruit and you're stealing stuff. If you're going to do that at this level, what are you going to do when you move on? So, I mean, you're a bit old school, Chris. You'd, you'd relate to that. It identifies their underlying values. Um, now, that kind of integrity testing, and that's what it's called when they put the $10 note out, we don't do that in recruit training. Um, but we do do integrity testing, and, and it's so secretive, that's about all I can say about it. Right. Um, yes. it, it's something that is kept highly confidential um, by how how it's done and so on. But we do integrity testing on a targeted basis. I, I worked in Tasmania for a couple of months. I, I taught on their inspectors course there. And I, I remember vividly, they had a wet bar operating there at the academy. And it was entirely run by recruits. And I was surprised by that, that it wasn't overseen by staff at all, but it was entirely run by recruits. And I read the rules of their bar one night, and the rules were that it had to close at a particular time unless a commissioned officer gave approval for it to be extended. And I was in that bar one night, and it got to that time, and someone came to me and said, how about extending it? And I said, good idea. So I went to the recruit who was in charge that night, and I said, I'm authorising a one-hour extension. And he said, sir, we're closing right now. And I said, no, no, I, I, I'm authorising a one-hour extension. Um, I'm a commissioned officer. And he said, you're not one of ours. He said, we're closing right now. Now, he was firmly congratulated the following day for taking that stand. Yeah, um, yeah. He was also told that I, I did have the authority to extend it. Um, <laughs> but he was abiding by rules that he understood. It had to be a Tasmanian commissioned officer. Fair enough, um, fair enough. So... Uh, you know, those little signals will stand out for us all the time. Um, yes, yes. That's a great story. And, and you, we were talking off air too, um, Chris, about this. And, um, you know, if police do the wrong thing, and, and as in any profession they, they will, not only can they be subjected quite rightly to any criminal offences or any breaches, 
but and, and some folks wouldn't be aware of this. They will also be subjected to an internal police investigation. Absolutely. And, and yeah. e- even in some circumstances, if they they may have been found not guilty of a criminal charge at a, at a, at a level of being proven beyond reasonable doubt, but they could still be subjected to an internal investigation. And I know you and I were throwing some terms around back in the day in New Zealand, they called that conduct prejudicial to police practice. I think your Victoria had a similar term. And yep. that's just, just, just give us that little bit of an insight. So, look, we maintain policing, um, police are required to be held to a higher standard. And it is called double jeopardy in Victoria. Um, so if you're, you, you're dealt with in a criminal court, regardless of the result, you will then be dealt with in the discipline process as well in every single case in, in one way or another. Whether you appear before a hearing officer for a formal hearing uh, with a potential to be dismissed or whether you appear before a senior officer for an admonishment, um, there will be a second stage to every process. The best and most common example is police that, that get pinged for drink driving. Um, I did one of those drink driving investigations um, not long before I retired, um, where a police officer had blown only a very small amount over the the limit. Um, he got an on the spot fine. He lost his license, uh, and and that was all dealt with as as it would have been for any member of the community. And then he was charged with an offence um, under the Police Regulation Act, as it was then, for incurring. Uh, a, a, tra- a serious traffic offence whilst being a member of the Victoria Police. And he went through a discipline hearing process where he could have been dismissed. He wasn't, but he did have a serious outcome out of it. And he was formally reprimanded, which is probably the next level down from being dismissed. Was this, there's a there's a, a case, was this a guy that was a, or was it a different case, which was a, a guy that you would describe as a fairly close friend of yours, a guy well, that you he, knew quite well? He was certainly uh, someone I knew very well, and he was uh, someone I would describe as a as close acquaintance. I was quite happy to step up and do the investigation because I wanted to get it done and done quickly. Um, I'm a firm believer that these things never get better with age. And, no. and you've got to play a straight bat there too, don't you, Chris, in those sort of situations? Absolutely. And and he knew that was going to happen. Um, yeah. He knew that he wasn't going to get any favours, but he knew that he was going to get a fair process. So, you know, um, I, I I think back to 1974 on the 3rd of June when I took an oath and, it, and, and that oath contained the words um, without fear or favour. I remind myself of that oath often. I still have it in my study at home. You don't get to choose when you operate without fear or favour. It's all the time. Yes, and I, I, I had a uh, a great chat with a, a very senior uh, past officer Vic Police recently who said that um, you've got to be able to have those hard discussions. And and oftentimes when they're not had, uh, this behaviour is not pulled up, it's not pulled up, not pulled up, because nobody has sat down and had the hard discussion with the individual. Yeah, and and I've often heard it described as a hard discussion, but I just describe it as part of your job. Yeah. Um, if you're not prepared to have that level of discussion, then you're not doing your job. Yeah. And I think people are entitled to expect it and they're entitled to expect honesty. Mm. Um, so, mm. you know, I, I think far too often we're, you know, in, in all sorts of occupations, we're not prepared to, to go to that honest level of saying, well, you know, this is what, what I think ab- about your performance at this stage. Um, you know, I remember when we brought in a new selection process, everyone was getting told who didn't get the job that they came second. So we had this, we had this, you know, <laughs> workforce of silver medalists. And when the new system came in, I did a selection process and one of the people contacted me after who didn't get the job and, and said, how'd I go? And I said, you came eighth. And they said, eighth? What do you mean eighth? Nobody comes eighth. <laughs> And I said, well, you did. <laughs> and there was only nine involved. So. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. I, look, what, I think they're entitled to expect honesty like that. Yeah. Um, because sure. if you tell them they just missed and they didn't just miss, they're, they're not going to improve on, on no, the next and, time. And you're not, you're not doing them any favours. Absolutely not. Hey, no. Yeah. Now, look, you, you also, uh, you delivered leadership programs uh, to, to police, one, you know, to, to high-level police or when you're at a fairly high level yourself. And um, there was a lovely quote there I saw where you said that l- those of us who are delivering the programs would take great satisfaction from seeing the participants 
overtake us in rank. I thought that <laughs> that's that's such a wonderful quote because not everybody is humble enough to sort of say, you know, if I do my job properly, these people I'm working with will be above me, you know, at some point down the track. Yeah, yeah I stole that from my boss. Um, my boss at that time was a, a superintendent by the name of Don Grigg, and he used to say it often, um, and he saw people um, go and get promoted beyond him, and I saw the same um, in, involved in that training. Um, I've seen two chief commissioners come through, including our current one, and um, so, you know, he easily outstripped me, both of them, Ken Lay and uh, Shane Patton. Yeah, I think you said you said in, a, in an interview that a, a young bloke by the name of Ken Lay came through the yeah, program, yeah. Ended, up, ended up the chief commissioner. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there is a lot of pride about that happening because um, you'd hope that you've played a tiny part in that progression to them getting to that level. No one gets to that level accidentally. Um, they, anyone that gets there, they deserve it and... You know, um, it, it's a hell of a job, so I'm, I'm not sure I'd wish it I, even on my closest friends. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think also, um, Chris, you know, you're a chap who never lost sight of, of where you came from. Um, you, everyone goes into the job as a constable. Now, not everyone goes up through the ranks. Some do, some don't. Some go different directions. But everybody starts as a constable. And, and to be fair... To be fair, Chris, we've met no shortage of commissioned officers who perhaps get to that role and forget to look back over their shoulder and um, and it's sort of all about them looking forward. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but, you know, when you talk to the troops, the troops know who the commissioned officers are that remember where they've come from versus those that don't. You know, there's that lovely old saying, which I'm sure it used to circle around uh, when you're working a night shift there, the old shark in the harbour, when there was an inspector vehicle that was out sort of driving around and everyone had to be a bit careful what they said on air and everything else. And there's an element of, of, of respect for um, for rank, of course, in the police, because it's a hierarchical sort of a process. But, um, you know, the commissioned officers that had the greatest respect from the troops were ones like yourself that never lost sight of where you came from. Now, you've got to remember that every single day. You're no more important than anyone else. You've just got a more important job in some cases than some others. But um, my quote is that we all put our pants on one leg at a time, so we're still all just humans and, you know, we were dumb and stupid just like everyone else um, and, and we did dumb and stupid things at constable levels and we shouldn't expect everyone to be as clever as we might think we are today. Um, I admire people that seek um, high-level promotion. I also admire people who stay at senior constable level and and set themselves up in a country town for 30 or 40 years. Both of them are uh, uh, admirable things to do, um, but yeah. one is not better than the other. I hate the expression where people say, well, I chose not to go on. You know, getting promoted isn't a, a symbol of going on. It's simply a symbol that someone thinks you're capable of dealing with greater responsibilities. That's all. This really sums up exactly what you're saying that, um, you know, and you said it before, but I had this written down here that we're all sworn in as constables, not inspectors, not superintendents. And at a base level, we're all simply constables. Absolutely the way it is. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a great, that's a great way to look at it from someone who's got up as high through the ranks as yourself. And of course, a daughter now, a daughter as a, uh, as a senior constable, um, young yeah, Lauren, she's working in Victoria there and whereabouts? She does. She works at Hastings. Um, yes. She's a general duties me a member there, and uh, um, her priority in her life is being a mother. Um, <laughs> so um, I think at, at, at that age, my priority might have been more career-focused, but her priority is 100% being a mother to three magnificent grandchildren. Wow. You know, I know she works hard, and um, she enjoys the, her work, and... You know, I often say to young young coppers that being a constable or a senior constable is some of the greatest fun you'll ever have in your life. Um, so you never know what's going to happen every day when you go to work. You never know, mate. And, and you know, that's <laughs> isn't that the great thing about the job? You never know what's around the corner. You never know what the next job is that's going to come through on the radio. Yeah. yeah. Large yeah. periods of boredom interspersed <laughs> with short periods of frenzied activity. And, and fear. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, now, um, Chris, uh, 1974, you kicked off, retired from the job, uh, 2019. Um, that's a 45-year career. Goodness me, that's, that's some transition to make um, after 45 years, I bet. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. 45 years and six days. 
um, is what I did. Um, and I often get asked, what do you, do, do you miss anything out of it? And, and I absolutely do. Nearly everyone who gets asked that question says they miss the people. Um, I don't because the people that were important to me, I still see. Um, you know, one of the things in retirement is I have a lot of lunches with um, people I used to work with and we, we tell lies about how good we used to be. But what I miss is the opportunity to make a contribution. And so one of the things I've done to, to satisfy that is I've, I do some voluntary work as a, a learner driver mentor um, where I work through the council where they supply a car and the petrol and everything and they get me for nothing and I work with them to get all their 120 hours up. And I reckon that helps me satisfy that little piece of I'm making a contribution to one more driver being on the road who's just a little bit safer than they might have been otherwise. And it also keeps me in touch with younger people because they're all usually teenagers. And I get a really good understanding of what teenagers are thinking about rather than my wild assumptions. Yeah, and, and mate, it's it's interesting, you know, um, Chris, to hear that because it's, in a sense, you've gone full circle from the motivation that you had to go into the job. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, just to simply contribute to do something for the community and, and, and here you are after 45 plus years now in the job and maybe four or five out of it, you still have that yearning to, to put something back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and look, I think most coppers are like that, that, they, they join for the reason that they want to contribute something to the community. Some of them might change their motivation along the way, but underlying everything they do, that's why they're there. And, you know, I, I feel quite good about that. You know, I'm not silly enough to think that there's some that aren't, are, are just not, don't have that motivation and they might be a bit more selfish about it all. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that's a real small minority. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure, mate, to sit here and uh, and have a bit of a yarn with you. I, I, and I thank you so much for taking the time to come. And I, for mine, you're that true old school gentleman police officer. You know, and I say that with absolute sincerity. You encapsulate everything which we look up to in the police. And uh, you know, you just you know, like the fact you never lost sight of of where you came from and and your honourable motivation behind joining the job. It's simple but you know, but but honorable. You wanted to do something good for the for the community. And I think you've you've certainly achieved achieved that in spades and um and I'm sure that uh many would agree that uh you know folks like you leaving the job, you know, it's, it's a good man leaving some very, very big shoes to fill um Chris and uh and I just want to say with absolute sincerity mate, well thank you for your service and, and, and thank you for taking the time to come and have a yarn to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brent. My my great pleasure. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>